Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hi everyone and welcome to LawPod. I'm Rachel Killeen, a lecturer in the School of Law here at Queen's University Belfast. So today we are switching gears a little bit from our usual themes and turning our gaze inwards uh, to think about the role of higher education and universities in perpetuating but also potentially resisting white supremacy and structural racism. So following the tragic murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor by police officers in the US, we will have seen in the media that protests and riots are swiftly spreading through the US. And while protests following racist police brutality are not new, this current wave of global solidarity and uprising against white supremacy in the US and beyond feels particularly urgent. So in the wake of this movement, students at higher education institutions across the UK and Ireland have been speaking out about their experiences of racism and racial inequality. And here at Queen's, we are no exception to that. And last month, we saw the African-Caribbean Society send an open letter to our Chancellor and Vice-Chancellor where they highlighted the racism they have experienced and questioned the adequacy of the university's actions to combat that institutional racism. So I thought it would be important for us to reflect on these events and their broader implications. And to do so, I am pleased to welcome to LawPod two guests with significant experience in advocating for Black, Asian and minority ethnic students here at Queen's. So first, I would like to welcome Oluwayomi Olaide Kalapa. Yomi is a final year master's student and he's studying structural engineering with architecture. And for our purposes, it's most important to note that he is the president of the African Caribbean Society. So hello, Yomi, and thanks for joining us today. Hi, Rachel. Thanks for having me today. Uh, no, our pleasure. And then second, I would like to welcome Hamzavari Rajaswaran. And Hamza has been twice elected the Equality and Diversity Officer in the Queen's Student Union, and she finished her most recent term just at the end of June past. And so in this role, she has campaigned for inclusive education for all, for investigations to, into the BAME attainment gap, and for the decolonization of the institution. So hello, Hamza. Welcome to LawPod. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, no, again, our pleasure. So yeah, we're delighted to have you both here today. Um, and to start us off, Yomi, I wonder if you could maybe begin the conversation by telling us a little bit about the African Caribbean Society's decision to send the letter and maybe highlight some of the demands that were contained within it. Yeah, sure. Um, once again, thanks for having me on the podcast. And I think it's very important that this kind of discussion is you know, had around the university you know, just to increase the awareness and to you know, increase the education that people have about what's going on. Um, so in terms of like you know giving background to what you know giving background to our <clears throat> open letter, um, it kind of stems. So we, we all know it started from like the George Floyd um, incident that happened in America, and and then you know some some acts of solidarity you know started coming about. One of which was the Blackout Tuesday that happened on the second of June, and you know at this point nobody was really you know. Um, focused on what the university was doing, everybody was kind of like, you know, engrossed in the whole act of racism around the world and what whatnot. But then, you know, to our, our amazement, it was quite, you know, disappointing to see, you know, despite not putting out anything before the Blackout Tuesday, that the university on their Instagram page 
posted a black square with no context or anything. And this kind of infuriated us and, you know, kind of felt like, you know, this was just like performative solidarity. And, you know, it was at this point we realized that, you know, the university is not, you know, innocent, you know, um, in terms of, you know, how it handles racism. And this kind of led to us, you know, putting out the open letter on the 4th of June. Um, in the open letter, we had specific demands. You know, we wanted the university to invest in decolonizing the institution. We wanted the university to also invest and research the Bain attainment gap. And we also wanted them to invest in culturally competent mental health policies and services. Um, so these were amongst, you know, part of our demands. And this is what we were hoping that the university would take on board. Um, in response to our open letter, the vice chancellor did respond shortly after. Um, as he said that he was deeply concerned that, you know, we as black students have faced this kind of racism. And, um, you know, but in his response, he did not touch on specific things that, you know, we had touched on in our letter. You know, the vice chancellor's um, unwillingness to use the word black, you know, and, you know, resorts to, you know, um, Bain, you know, was kind of concerning a little bit um, in the letter. And, you know, in his, in his um, university-wide communication as well, um, it was a step in the right direction, I would say, you know, it shows that the university was in, in a way ready to listen to us and ready to you know, take us seriously. But, you know, like I said before, there was still some stuff that were not touched on and there was no real commitment to action. And that was, you know, quite concerning for us as well as a, as a body. You know, certain things in the letter, you know, kind of made us raise an eyebrow. You know, for example, you know, stating in the university-wide communication that, you know, Black History Month was in November, when, you know, across the UK and Ireland for many, many years, Black History Month has been celebrated in October. You know, just little, little things like this kind of, like, made us raise an eyebrow and, you know, wonder is the university really taking what we, you know, our demands seriously? Or are they actually, um, you know, just trying to be celebrated for small little actions that they take? Um, so that's that's probably the, a, bit, a bit of background to the whole open letter um, that we released and the whole um, issue of racism in Queens. Thank you, Yomi. And, you know, you went on to talk a little bit about the vice chancellor's response there. And you mentioned the risks of this kind of performative solidarity. And I wondered if you could just say a little bit more about that and what the risks are in addition to masking inaction of these kind of performative solidarity actions. Yeah, so when, you know, when we see performative solidarity, you know, from the person who's issuing this solidarity, it might seem like they are, you know, taking an action and they might, it might seem like a, a way of them, you know, showing that they are in support. But to the people, to the subject, it, it's, it's very glaring and very clear that, you know, what's happening is performative solidarity. And it kind of comes across a little bit like, what I'd say, an insult or like a, probably like a slap in the face saying like, okay, these people are not really taking us seriously. You know, it's probably like a, an attempt to, in a way, pacify the subjects of, you know, the, the, the racism. Um, so what that inherently does is it makes those of us who are, like, requesting for demands and actions to be taken to lose trust in, in the process, to lose trust in the systems that, you know, we should trust and we should believe that are there to help us. Um, so, yeah, like, it brings about a lack of trust in the authorities that, you know, 
they are not really taking it seriously. And um, yeah, it just brings about a lack of trust, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. thank you for that. I wonder then if we maybe just go into a little bit more detail about some of the specific demands that, that you had asked and that you had raised. So one of the issues that is highlighted in the letter is this critique of Queen's University's focus on internationalizing the curriculum rather than decolonizing the curriculum. And Hamza, I know that you have also focused on both of these approaches in your role as a quality and diversity officer, but you have also critiqued Queen's focus on internationalization. And I wonder if you would maybe unpick the distinction between these two approaches for those in the audience that might be less familiar with these terms. Yes, um, absolutely, Rachel. Um, so something that um, the university has really been focusing on over the past um, good few years, to be honest, um, has been internationalization. Um, international students, obviously, um, bring in a large chunk of income into the university because we pay fees that ranges anywhere between um, £12,000 to over £30,000 per year. Um, for each year of our courses Um, and so um, increasing the number of international students has been a big focus of the university's um, corporate plans Um, and you'll see in Vision 2020 um, the the university's previous corporate plan um, it was a huge part of their their aims was to increase the student population Um, you know and it was quite a big jump they were looking at uh, as well so as part of internationalization, um, something that I've worked on is, is really looking at, you know, obviously we do want to bring more international students onto campus, the diversity um, and, and the wealth of knowledge um, that international students can bring to our campus is, is really amazing and, and something we want to see. But what we're not addressing is um, the experiences of these international students and their, their student experience once they do get here. Um, in terms of decolonizing education, um, decolonization is is much more of a radical um, approach. It's looking at at um, liberating our education system, and and you know the education system, especially in the UK, is deeply rooted um, in racism. Um, historically, um, higher education spaces weren't built for um, black students. weren't built for um, you know, students of color, and so, and so, decolonizing our institutions is a much more radical approach at, at you know, reshaping what our education looks like, and and it's also very much um, building a liberated and anti-racist education system that that um, intrinsically um, includes racial justice for students, staff, and workers within the institution. Um, higher education institutions in the UK are very much vested in a racist and xenophobic climate, um, both of the wider societies uh, as well as, you know, other universities. And the marketization of higher education um, reduces um, the university's responsibilities towards its workers. Um, Decolonizing education really means democratizing, and that is talking about transformative change, and and we know that's not going to happen through um, you know getting a seat at the table, uh, but by really leveraging student worker um, power against institutions and and to to put control 
um, back in the hands of the people of the university um, and, and to have actual democratic structures of accountability um, for our senior management, for um, our Senate, and also looking at, you know, the the corporate interests of the university and, and bringing it back to what it matters, um, which is, you know, um, our education, um, student and staff-centered um, learning spaces. Um, so um, internationalization essentially is, is something that's very much part of the marketization and, and corporatization of um, the higher education system in the UK. And, and so decolonization in itself um, doesn't doesn't match up with the word internationalization at its core because decolonization talks about confronting these processes um, and and you know shutting down um, using universities um, as as spaces um, for for marketized education systems, but rather reshaping our universities um, into spaces that you know, where students and staff can actually organize for radical change um, and, and not just narrowly consider matters of curriculum um, or, or diversity tactics. Yeah, so if I understand you then, it's about much more than just the actual learning experience, but also speaks to the heart of the role of a higher education institution in the society in which it's operating. Mm, absolutely. I think um, so many people um, don't necessarily see the university um, as a space that's meant to be for, um, you know, knowledge production um, and, and that is meant to be a very inspiring space for students and staff to exist within. But the reality of um, our university today is that it's very much a space that that is so vested in marketization that it's that it's not looking at the interests of the people that make up the university, um, and so decolonization really talks about refocusing all of that and and confronting the power structures that have have turned universities into what they are today. Mm. A link to that, I suppose. I'd been reading about the work of um, Mel's Owusu, who had been crowdfunding in order to set up a free black university. So she had talked about a university with the goals of imagining transformative worlds and redistributing knowledge and readings and engaging the radical black imagination. And that seems to resonate with what, what you're saying. It seems to come from this decolonized position. But her statement was that she had come to the conclusion that you cannot transform a university from the inside and that instead we have to look to alternative structures outside the university. I, want, I wonder what your thoughts are on that and whether maybe just reflecting on your experience at Queen's, is it possible to decolonize an existing structure or is, does the answer lie elsewhere? So um, in my time at Queen's, I have done a lot of work around decolonizing um, the curriculum, the institution. I prefer saying institution because I don't think the curriculum in itself is, is going to fix the problem. Um, but, but absolutely, um, you know, I'm with Mel's when they say, that there is no space within the structures that we we exist within. Um, you know, it's become so clear that that the current education system is so broken that there is no space um, for this work. Um, we we can try to fix things as much as we can, 
But as it stands, as long as we are working within the power structures that are, are built to keep us out um, as black students and students of color, um, then then there is there is really we need more radical spaces and radical opportunities for for building um, you know a truly anti-racist um, space for ourselves and 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 yeah I'm absolutely with Mel on the fact that I don't think that this this necessarily is the way forward anymore but I do think that it's important for universities to confront their complicity in racism. I think it's important for um, decolonized campaigns um, that are student and staff led on the ground within universities. I think it's important for us to confront um, what the difference between diversity and decolonization is. Um, and um, I also think it's very important for universities to continue doing their best to actually radically transform themselves into spaces that that you know, students and staff of color can can be proud of and and can actually feel like they are part of, um, and so, you know, I do think that there is an onus in universities to do these things, but the free black university is an idea that's beyond um, the the confines of universities, and I think I think no matter how much we try to change a university there will be still confines and, and Mel's work on the free black university talks about something that's so refreshingly radical and is a space that's built for black people and black academics. Um, and it's, it's, um, you know, her 10 point, um, plan talks about, um, you know, open access and, and making sure that, um, there's like a free and expansive library of radical, um, readings. Um, you know, they talk about, delivering conferences and, and, and free and accessible education centered on the freedom of black people and things like that. And that's something I think that needs just a separate space for because um, black students and black academics have been oppressed and silenced for so long. Um, there are, there are going to be things that universities can, uh, can do to fix these problems, but we're talking, these are really long-term approaches. Um, our university spaces are not going to become anti-racist um, inclusive, um, and, and, you know, these things that are not going to happen overnight. Um, the free black university is a space that is, is built for, for black academics and black students to be able to heal from the racial trauma that, that the higher education system poses on them. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a fantastic idea and the work that Mel's is doing, um, is, is really incredible. They, they've really honestly done um, some amazing things. And to be honest, um, as someone who's now able to look back at, at my work within Queens and, and talking about decolonization um, within Queens, I really, really hope that um, the university senior management um, looks into in, investing um, in, in, in black academics experiences and um, interests and, you know, donating to the free black university. <laughs> Thank you, Hansa. And I think um, what you're highlighting there about the the need to both explore alternatives elsewhere, but also, you know, continue to keep our gaze on um, the current institutions that we have links to another issue that was highlighted in the letter. And that was the importance of placing black and minority students and staff at the heart of initiatives to decolonize institutions. 
And Hansa, you've also spoken about the importance of student-led change. So I guess a question for both of you is how universities can best support Black and minority students in leading change without falling into the trap of basically overburdening marginalised communities with the task of dismantling their own oppression. So Yomi, maybe first, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Um, so what I think, so I'll just uh, refer back to like a conversation I had, um, you know, with, with someone I know uh, within the university. And, you know, the person basically highlighted the fact that, you know, uh, Queens um, would spend money on consulting, you know, for for other things, you know, things that are not, let's say, that are not with regard to the Black Lives Matter thing right now. Um, so what they could do, basically, in this regard would be, you know, if, they, if Queens is happy to, you know, spend money on consulting fees, you know, for somebody, for an expert in a certain field, let's say, for example, well-being, you know, they could spend money uh, on uh, to pay a cons- consultant in terms of well-being. I think a step in the right direction would be also to, you know, pay someone like a consultant, you know, out there, you know, who could advise the university in the best way possible, kind of in terms of like the ways to go about um, decolonizing the institution. Like with students, obviously, you don't want to overburden students because, you know, our prim- we, are, we are paying to be educated in the university and, you know, we're probably not paying to teach the university their job or show, what, show the university what they're doing. But like I guess the students could in a way um, recommend if they know like people out there who are great in these kind of roles, who are great in in consulting, who are who are knowledgeable and and know what to do in terms of what to do in terms of um, decolonizing the institution. I guess so. That would be my uh, my take on that. Yeah. Thank you. And Hamza, do you have anything you would want to add to that? I think Yomi said some really um, important things there, and. And I really do believe that work needs to be centered on um, the black voices and and um, black student experience, I guess, in the university as well. But but it is it is a very tricky uh, thing to balance um, doing this work with centering their voices without overburdening them. But the way I see it, it's um, you know I've had to do this in my work as well, where you know it's very important to me that I center the voices of liberation groups and in, in whatever work I've done during my time um, in the SU. Um, but I've always looked at it as, um, you know, using my platform and my role um, and, the, and the power that I had in that position to, to center their voices and, and um, you know, their wants um, for change in the university or in wider society um, and do what I can in my power through my role um, to to amplify their voices, to to tackle the changes that they would like to see, and so um, not making um, students and staff from um, those backgrounds do the emotional labor, but rather listening to them um, and centering their voices, and in this case, the demands of the ACS letter um, in the work that the university does going forward, which. I think for me personally, reading the vice chancellor's letter um, didn't necessarily come through um, in in sort of a solid commitment, you know. Yeah, yeah. It comes back to that notion of um, performativity then and the difference between um, 
making a declaration that sounds right compared to actually doing the work essentially yeah um i think i think it's important um both in terms of the university but also just in in wider conversations both about decolonizing practices um and just anti-racism um it's important for allies to to realize how exhausting these conversations are um you know, a lot of what's happened over the past month has been, you know, black students and black staff putting their trauma out for people to see. Um, the things that were raised in that open letter um, were honestly so painful to read. For me personally, you know, it felt like as a university, we have failed our students. Um, and and that is that is a very powerful um, emotion I think that came from the letter for me and so I hope that people reading it people in senior management people in positions of power to actually um, you know radically change the way we're approaching these conversations um, you know do get that wake-up call because a lot of this has been pain and trauma that black students and staff have been have been putting out to the world to see in hopes that people will wake up, but also I don't think enough is being recognized in that um, all of this pain and trauma is, is exhausting um, for, for people to have to put out for the world to see. And, and as allies, we need to be doing better. We need to do more to support um, our black siblings in their fights and, and use our platforms as allies um, to, to do that yeah yeah I think that's exactly right and I think what you're saying there about this you know feeling that people have to share their trauma and these difficult things that have happened to them in order to affect change links into another thing that was raised by the letters particularly important which is the need for culturally competent mental health services and I know Hamza that that connects to your own work on mental health as a liberation issue so I wanted to ask you both a bit about that. You know, what does it mean for mental health services to be culturally competent? And why is that so important in higher education in particular? So Yomi, maybe you could talk a little bit about that particular issue in the letter. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'll start off by saying, um, by quoting basically. So basically, you know, you know, during this whole um, Black Lives Matter stuff and the whole um, um, open letter case, we had some... Um, event on Instagram, so IG Live TV on Instagram, and one of the um, ladies who was speaking to us, you know, you know, told us basically how the university has in the past, you know, dealt with reports on racism, and I quote: "These students come from rural backgrounds, and universities are first exposure to ethnic diversity. We believe punitive action will remove their learning opportunities." as they can use these experiences to grow. So from that kind of response, so I don't know how I, as a black um, student, would trust, trust this system to, again, go and report any case of racism or report that I'm feeling a bit marginalized because of my, my skin color. You know, it's just the kind of response that I'm, I'm getting back. You know, 
if I was take if I was to take this this uh, this this response, what this would mean to me as a student would be that, you know, the money I'm paying doesn't really matter. You know, I'm paying if if I'm coming as an international student, you know, I'm paying you know close to north of twenty thousand pounds to study, but I'm not paying twenty thousand pounds to come and have to put up with racism from you know people if that makes sense. So I feel like if culture if we have culturally competent um, well-being services, I feel like the way you know the way we will be able to report you know racism or issues of racism would be a lot easier for us and there'd be more trust in the system because it's to be fair you know it's it's hard to narrate your experience of racism to someone who can't really relate to that kind of experience that you've had or somebody who who in who in themselves you know has um what's the word now sorry um I'm just trying to think of the word. They have a privilege, basically. Mm. You know, re- reporting. You know, my my race racism I've experienced to somebody who is is privileged. You know, because of the color of their skin. So I feel like if the university, you know, invest in you know culturally competent um, well-being services, I feel like you know everybody would feel a little bit more comfortable to go and speak to to these well-being services if that makes sense. Somebody you can easily relate to. I'm not being you know, met with a response like, you know, stu- the students come from rural backgrounds, so you know, just let them be, let them, let them grow, you know, while I have to put up with the racism. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It makes sense, and um, it's an unfortunate kind of privileging of certain experiences over others, and you know, placing the learning over actual direct suffering seems to be massively disconnected to the student experience. And it seems to me from what you're saying there is there's two parts to this then, because part of it is about sensitivity training and making sure people that are in these positions understand diverse experiences, but also having people in those services who perhaps have diverse experiences themselves rather than, you know, grounded in only one particular worldview and one particular background. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, we, we, could, we could look at it from that point of view, so... You know, if if it is a case where you know there is difficulty in finding people who have had these um, um, experiences or who have these similar backgrounds, then it comes to a case of training these people on how or making them understand that you know the experiences that they would have with not with, I was about to say normal, not normal people, the experiences that they have with you know locals, I guess it's not the same experiences that you would have with international students. So then you know how they handle you know mental health services and how they hand, handle the well-being of these people because um, a lot a lot, a lot of it might come from uh, being from little microaggressions and, and stuff like that that takes a very large toll on someone's mental health microaggressions mm-hmm. because you can't actively speak out against it but you know it's happening but you yourself you have to deal with it yourself because of fear of um, people calling you out for overreacting or stuff like that so it's yeah um they could if like I said, if there's a difficulty in finding people who have had these diversity experiences, then it then comes down to training the people in these services to be able to deal with a uh, diverse diverse culture in the university, I guess. Yeah, thank you for that. And Hamza, I wonder if you want to add anything to that or talk about your work on mental health as a liberation issue in particular. Yeah, so I think I think what um, it's really important for me in this is that, um, you know, obviously Yomi has raised a lot of points uh, based on like personal experiences and 
um, you know, before I started my role um, as um, a quarter university officer in the SU, um, something that I really, really struggled navigating was conversations around mental health within the university as a student of colour. Um, you know, I think within the higher education um, you know, system, within um, Queens in itself, like mental health has been a really big conversation over the past couple of years. Um, you know, there is a student mental health crisis within higher education. However, a lot of what's being done, a lot of the approaches that are being used to address the issues are so far removed from um, the experiences that um, students of colour have, but also just, um, and, and this is why I phrased it as uh, looking at mental health as a liberation issue, um, students from um, marginalised backgrounds um, have very different experiences of mental health um, because um, and like Yomi said, you know, um, the racism that we face or um, the discrimination that LGBT students face or um, sexism that women might face or disablism that disabled students face, that trauma impacts us very differently on top of the um, factors um, for the mental health issues that students face on top of, you know, the financial issues that cause us um, you know, um, mental health issues, the the housing um, crisis as well that's really affecting student mental health at the minute. All of these things on top of the fact that we come from these liberation backgrounds um, and hold that trauma of, of, you know, navigating university spaces, um, you know, and for me that, you know, is existing in, you know, a classroom of over 120 um students with with three students of color um was was really really tough for me and and like Yomi said you don't you don't feel like you can speak about your experiences you don't feel like the people that you um have to talk to about these experiences within the structures that we have currently are going to be able to understand you resonate with you or remotely even take you seriously sometimes um I know we have a really robust, um, you know, work that's being done right now around reporting and supporting, and that's fantastic. But the thing is, our staff populations, especially in departments like wellbeing, are not representative of the student populations, especially of the student population that, you know, currently isn't very well engaged uh, with conversations on mental health. Um and and so when when I started my role in the SU, it was very important for me that we start talking about mental health as a liberation issue, um, to talk about the additional trauma that students from these marginalized backgrounds, um, you know, have in accessing mental health, um, and and I want to be able to see that reflected in the policies um, that the university is taking forward on mental health right now because. Um, I know the university is doing a lot of work around it. The, there's the institutional framework that's currently being put together. And, and to me, that's a perfect opportunity um, to actually see a real um, tangible commitment to culturally competent mental health care services. And, and like Yubi said, that, that can be easily achieved through, through training, through employing uh, more staff of colour um, and, and through actually, um, you know, making an effort to, to try and see how can we engage uh, with, 
with our black student communities? How can we engage with other students of color? Um, and it's also important to realize that um, the BAME student population in in our university is largely international, uh, just because of the demographics of our university. And and so for many students, that racism is is you know layered with xenophobia um, within their classrooms. And and I in the two years of being in my role, I. I was, you know, quite visible um, in terms of my work on international student experience, in terms of my work on um, anti-racism. And that meant that, you know, I engaged with so many students from these communities and the number of students I had coming to me on a weekly basis with these horrific stories of of racism and xenophobia, um, things their classmates were saying um, when they were forced to work in groups, things um, that teachers have said um, in in classrooms are, are shocking. But the thing is, students don't feel like they want to report it. The reason that a lot of students came to me is because they didn't feel like they could speak to their personal tutors or, or anyone in their school, and and they didn't want to talk to people, um, you know, in in the advice department to try and see about reporting this. They didn't trust in the reporting systems because. They didn't want to have to go through the experience of sitting down in front of a white person and have to explain their experiences of racism. And and there's definitely, again, like Yomi said, a lot of this comes in 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 terms of microaggressions that take place in the university. Um, and I've had to navigate that myself as a student and as a quality and diversity officer and these are real issues that are not being addressed and culturally competent mental health care would be a big first step to providing a space that's actually healing um, for these student and staff communities. Thank you. I mean, obviously, as a staff member, it's very devastating to hear about these kind of experiences at Queen's, but it's also really important that they are highlighted. I really appreciate you drawing attention to them and sharing these experiences and, and challenges. And as you were talking, I was really reminded of, you know, just the the need for the centrality of intersectionality in everything that we do, and particularly in higher education, and how often these issues of mental health get siloed into their own domain, and therefore shut out the recognition that mental health is going to be impacted by the way you move through the world and the way the world responds to you. And I think that's a really important um, point to raise. So thank you for that. When it, you know, you, you both raised the issue of microaggression and aggression, in fact, um, in your answers there. And I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, backlash, because whenever people speak out, people receive backlash. And this has been visible over the last few weeks uh, here in Belfast. Um, and to start, I wanted to reflect with you, Yomi, on the Belfast Live's decision to run an article covering the letter from the African Caribbean Society. Um, and so this article was um, shared. It talked about the letter, the response, and the continued feelings amongst the student body that not enough was being done. And the comments on that article are um, sometimes violent, often negative. Um, many are racist. And I wondered how you, Yomi, had um, processed that and how you had dealt with that, because that must be quite quite difficult to witness, and I, I would welcome your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, um, thank you for, you know, asking this question. Um, you know, the first thing I'll say is, like, I think that was, like, my, like, very first time being kind of put in the public eye. And it was quite unfortunate that, you know, it was in that way I was put in the public eye. Um, so when I had seen the article, you know, I felt like, you know, the headline, you know, kind of drew attention from what our purpose was. And I must say, and I speak on behalf of the ACF and all Black students in Queens when I when I say this, is that like we as students, we are not in like we are not interested in creating racial tensions in the university for any reason. You know, simply what we've seen is like we've seen. I think the university should see what we're doing as kind of almost like a. We've seen a gap. We've seen uh, an opening. You know, where that they they can fill and they can improve on. And basically, we're just basically suggesting that you know or demanding that they, they do things to make themselves an even better university, if that makes sense. So we're not, um, so contrary to what, you know, the, the article might have, um, uh, contrary to what it might, you know, put, portray, and um, we're not you know, interested in, um, in creating racial, racial tension, in, tension in the university at all. Yeah, but when I, when I saw the comments, I, you know, I was a bit scared, a little bit flustered, you know, that you know, people felt this way. Um, and obviously, you know, when you put a headline out like that, people are just going to take the headline and run with it. Not many people would go through the contents of the article and read for themselves or find out what the background is. And I just felt like, you know, that article was in a little way taken out of context. And I, I, I wish, you know, a bit more context was added in the headline or, you know, the headline kind of portrayed basically what we were trying to do, you know, demanding that students that, you know, we be, we be heard and things be done in a better way. Um, so yes, like the comments were, they flustered me a little bit, obviously. Um, you know, I heard the, in, in the comments, there's, there's stuff like go back, if they're on A, take them off A, and, and stuff like that, you know, traumatizing stuff, which, you know, um, for a second I thought, you know, me coming back as a student, are people going to be looking at me like some kind of, you know, aggressive youth, <laughs> um, mm. or and look at me like another aggressive, um, black guy you know which is what the stereotypes would normally want to portray you as um you know that was my initial fear but then again i was also of the opinion that you know these are this is the media this is what you know the media can do um and i'm just confident in the fact that i i know i'm not the guy that <laughs> would probably you know the article might have kind of in a way portrayed me as you know kind of a little bit aggressive i guess but but yeah, that's that's just my take on it. So like I said at the beginning, we are nowhere near interested in creating racial tensions. We are there university. We want to live in harmony with everybody. We're not trying to be uh, you know, aggressive students or come across as, you know, yeah, violent or any way that might we have been we might be portrayed or might be seen, basically. Yeah, and I think it's a real shame that that's even something that you need to say and it's hard to see the way that um, aggression can be taken and, and used against people when they speak out and as you as you flagged yourself you know particularly when black people speak about their oppression this idea that they must be you know the aggressive black person and um, this kind of portrayal is really damaging and yeah it's a shame that there wasn't more nuance in the conversation online but hopefully um, we can you know in a small way, use this podcast to encourage people to actually read the letter and engage with the debate in a more meaningful way. Um, 
Hamza, I follow and very much enjoy your uh, social media presence. And <laughs> I see that you have also spoken out about having to deal with resistance and, and bigotry during your time as a quality and diversity officer. And I wonder, how, how did you cope to cope with rea- um, negative reactions to your work and pushback to your work? Hmm. Um, I'm going to be honest here, Rachel. I don't think I coped very well. Um, <laughs> I, I think my whole like social media presence was very much something that was unwelcome by a lot of people, both within and, and, and beyond the university. Um, I'm very like aware that in the two years that I, that I, you know, worked in my role, I, I was very much a, a, a target, um, for abuse from students, from, um, staff, from people beyond the university for my work within the students union. And, and it, my mental health was ruined. Um, I'm still still coming coming back out of all of that. The amount of the amount of abuse that I was subject to, the scrutiny that I was subject to from our own um, students, um, and the number of times I found myself having to to be um, you know a token at a table um, was incredibly dehumanizing. Um, working on anti-racism within a space as white as queens was extremely hostile for me um and 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 there was a lot of bigotry and a lot of resistance to my work um and and i i think i expected that from from outside the university but but what shocked me was the amount of backlash that i received from within the university and the number of times that, you know, I was actively silenced, the number of times I've been told that, you know, I'm too aggressive in my approach. And, and it comes back to that, the use of the word aggressive when I speak <laughs> passionately about issues that matter. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't think I necessarily um, coped with it. I, I felt a lot of pressure to push on and 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 keep being the person that spoke about these things but this came very much at the cost of my own mental and physical health if I have to be completely honest um and I think now that I have stepped down from my role and I'm completely removed from it all I can really see how much um damage being in that space has has done to me um the the amount of hatred I've received, um, the way that students have targeted me um, versus any other student officer that holds the same opinions um, has been has been vile. And, and to be honest, it, it became such a um, constant thing that I, that I was desensitized to it. Um, you know, towards the end, um, there was a student group that was fully harassing me on social media, constantly um, tweeting vile things about me and misrepresenting me on on Twitter um, for my politics, for my work in anti-racism. And and I honestly was just completely desensitized to it. I I didn't completely understand 
how awful all of that was because I think the only way I coped is was to just remove myself from from actually feeling um you know the pain and the trauma that all of that you know visibility brought to me yeah I think yeah I mean that's an entirely natural response to kind of shut down and I suppose now that you have stepped away my hope is that there's some space for um a bit of self-care for you now I was thinking of Audre Lorde there and how um self-care can be an act of political war warfare in itself and I hope that that's some warfare that you can engage in now <laughs> <laughs> yeah um I think I think something that that really has come to mind in terms of my reflections now that um I'm removed from that space is that um and again it comes kind of back to 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 the idea of the free black university as well um it's really made me reflect on on how change within our university spaces looks like for the people trying to drive that change um the amount of um work and time that i put in um was so much and 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 coming out of it after so much of of constant attack and scrutiny for everything that i said or did um you know really makes me believe that that we do need alternative spaces we do need spaces where where you know there is a space for for people to heal from the racial trauma of doing this work um and and that was something that that really really um lacked when when i was doing these things within queens yeah yeah i think this is potentially a strange question in light of the conversation that we've just been having but i'm thinking about our other students that might um, listen to this episode and I wonder a question to both of you is where might a student that's been experiencing racism or having a hard time seek support Um, and you know we've we've flagged the challenges of of, um, accessing institutional support but you know whether that's a student body or a student organization or something external entirely I wonder what you would recommend for for a student that might be struggling with these issues? So um, in terms of students coming forward to me over the past two years, something that I've really always um, advised is, because I know a lot of students don't want to access the support services currently available, I obviously do always advise them, you know, use uh, the mental health um, support services uh, that are available within our university. And so you know, the Inspire um, um, hotline, um, the services offered by well-being in terms of counselling, um, and also um, obviously using the report and support systems. Um, but I completely understand if students don't feel comfortable using these. But something that um, I, I always also include in this advice is, is telling students to try and join um, the different clubs and societies that we have. So you know, for black students, that's been um, the ACS being a space where they have a community of students, um, you know, who who understand their experiences and 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 to help them, fe- you know, find a space within the university so that they are not so isolated in their experiences. Um, and and there's lots of different international societies and cultural societies um, for students with um, from all these different backgrounds to find, um, you know, a space of 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 other students who 
people have to navigate um, moving through the university in a similar way. Yeah, Yomi, would you add anything to that? Um, yeah, I quite agree with uh, Hamza when she talks about um, the clubs and society. Um, but one thing I also want to say, you know, as I'm not an international student, um, I'll just put that out there. But like for international students that might that might come um, to study in Queens, you know, part of the international experience experience is mixing with other races and other people, and you know. You know, students might want to come in and, you know, say mix with, you know, the, the locals and stuff like that. But, you know, if they find that, you know, there's a bit of a, a repulse when they're trying to mix with, by default, people just go straight back to who they feel, you know, they can relate with. So like Hamza said, you know, if, if there are students out there who are struggling with finding, you know, you know services or places where they can um, talk about their feelings or just, just, you know, just want to talk. I guess, like, yes, the international um, societies are there and, you know, are always open to, who are we not to be open to, you know, talking to to people, you know, who, who are looking, you know, just who just want to talk, you know, they might not want to tell you about their experiences, but they just want to talk and they want to feel like they're part of a certain community. And yes, yeah, so like, that might be the, the um, South Asian society, and that might be the, the Chinese society, that might be the African Caribbean society, there's so many societies out there um, where, you know, you can feel part of the community, I guess. Um, but yeah, but we do hope that the universities, you know, would you know, meet our demands and, you know, look into how, you know, they, they invest in culturally competent um, well-being services. And as a result, you know, then, you know, we can boldly say and signpost students who might be feeling a bit marginalized or a bit, you know, um, put to the side, you know, we might be able to signpost them to these services. Um, but yeah, so that would be like my take on, you know, the support services that are in the university. Mm, thank you. Yes, and yeah, as you flagged there, hopefully things will improve as you continue to push and hopefully as the university takes on your um, your demands and the experiences that you highlighted. Um, one final question then, perhaps, for both of you is for any student that has listened to this and become interested in these topics, the topic of decolonizing institutions, topic of um, racial equality within higher education, what might one thing be that you would recommend that they either watch or read or listen to, you know, one place to, to go next, I guess? Um, so I personally, um, I've, been, I've been thinking, I think a lot about um, both accountability, um and and learning um for for allies but also just um more more healing spaces for for black people and, and people of color at this time um i think there's so many resources that are available right now for especially for allies and um black lives matter itself has put together reading lists loads of um universities loads of anti-racist collectives um, have put together reading lists. Um, I know Abolitionist Futures are doing some fantastic stuff um, and have been organizing um, virtual uh, reading groups. Um, so there's there's a lot that can um, be easily accessed at the, at the minute, especially um, in terms of um, learning um, and, and for, for Black students, for students of color, 
I think at the minute um, healing is so important, especially given the amount of, of trauma and pain um, that, that you know, we've all been exposed to at the moment. Um, and so I've really found a lot of refuge in, in um, you know, making time um, to, to, to spend time with people um, from similar backgrounds, um, you know, setting up different reading groups, um, taking time away from social media um, and, and um, you know, investing my time in more inspiring conversations, um, attending webinars um, by different um, anti-racist collectives and just taking the time to learn more myself. Yeah, thank you. Yomi, what about you? What would you recommend? Um, for me, my answer might be, it, it's not it's not passive aggressive or anything. Just just a disclaimer, but like what I would say is like a simple Google search, um, you know, would would help a lot. You know, there's so many resources out there, like Hamza said, and um, there's so many things even on Netflix that you'd find, you know, like that would like open your eyes to like racism. Like I think there's one called the Thirteenth on on Netflix. That's a really good one to watch. It does center on America, but then it makes you realize, oh, this this is how deep the, the issue is. Um, and I'll use what a friend of mine for example. Um, she she had sent me, so she she had not asked me about any books or anything. You know, she had expressed solidarity with the whole Black Lives Matter movement. But what she has been doing is she's been doing her own research and you know finding books for herself. And you know, randomly she would screenshot you know certain pages or stuff like that and send it to me and ask me, you know, is this true? You know, so she's she's taken it upon herself to you know do the search herself and find out you know what she needs to find out about the whole issue and educate herself more so you know like i said like a simple like google search on what specific topics you want to know maybe racism in a certain country or or books that you know help you understand uh, colonization or, or slavery you know would would definitely go a long way so that would be my recommendation i haven't mm-hmm. got a vast list of books you know from myself you know that i can that i can give but just to anyone um but you know yeah like the simple google search and there are social media pages that are dedicated towards um, um that are dedicated towards educating people about you know what's going on one of them that you probably heard about uh, is black and irish you know they gained, gained a lot of traction that's on instagram and they're educating people a lot about you know being black and Irish, being black in Ireland, and the history of black people in Ireland. Another one is Africans soaring in the era. That's another um, you know page as well that's dedicated to sharing the stories of you know, black people in Ireland that I, that I can speak of as well. There's another one for those in um, mainland is uh, black and British. Um, so yeah, there's so many social. If you're you know there's so many resources out there that you can find um, and you know use to educate oneself. Thank you both very much. Um, I wonder if there's anything else that you would like to say or that you think we should have covered. I think I just want to maybe add that, um, you know, I really think that like these conversations um, are really powerful, important, but what really I just want to see um, come out of all of this is, is, you know, genuine commitment from Queen's um, anyone reading that letter knows how much pain um, 
was behind that and and that this pain that our students are feeling cannot go on for longer and I really want to see genuine commitments from the university want to see genuine investments um, into you know hiring BAME staff to work in in these areas of decolonization and and um, looking into the mental health and and you know investigating the payment payment gap and and also just using the language that we're using would be so powerful um, you know it was disappointing for me to see the vice chancellor um, opt to use words like uh, diversity instead of decolonize um, opting to look at progression rates instead of attainment gap um, and and so you know actually tangibly looking at the issues that have been raised instead of opting for more institutional or corporate approaches towards this um, for me would be really powerful and and you know moving on from Queens I think I'd really like to see that future generations of students would never have to um, you know endure the, the experiences of racism that I myself have experienced firsthand and and that we've seen raised again in in the ACS letter. Mm, thank you Hamza. Yomi, do you have any last thoughts? Yeah so I just want to say like um, I just want to say that the whole issue should not be seen I don't think um, it should be seen as a, a, a burden you know for anybody that's seen it as a burden. If anything I think for the university it should be seen as an opportunity to improve uh, basically an opportunity to improve and that's all and like Hamza you know we, we'd be happy to see you know, real change and real commitment to change. You know, I want to be able to. You know, I don't. I don't want to be able. To, I don't want to have to be, uh, brush off the question of. Oh, I'm thinking of. You know, someone comes to me and asks, or oh, I'm thinking of coming to Queens. What do you think about the diversity in Queens? I don't want to have to brush that conversation under the rug. I want to be able to boldly say that. Oh yes, you know, Queens has in the last you know few years or few months committed to. You know. Um, handling race differently and improve the race uh, race relations, you know, uh, improving the race relations issues um, more. So I just want to be able to, as a student who will graduate from Queens next year, I want to be able to say, yeah, you know, um, in, in this time, you know, Queens has actually really made some real commitments to change in terms of how they handle race. So yes, that's basically what I, what I have to say. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I like your framing there as this is not, to be seen as something that's burdensome, but really as a, an opportunity to improve and an opportunity for institutional growth. So thank you for that. Um, I just want to thank you both uh, for your candor and openness in this conversation and for sharing something of your experiences, which have been painful, but also your important work on um, tackling racism and white supremacy at Queen's. It's been great to listen to you both. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having us. <laughs> Thank you for having me as well. Thank you. So you have been listening to LawPod. Uh, this is an informed take on current events brought to you by the staff and students at the School of Law at Queen's University, Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. And LawPod is funded by the Queen's University Law School. Thank you to my guests today, Aluwa Yami Olaide Kalafa and Hamza Bani Rajaswaran. You can follow us on Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org. And we will include some information in the show notes today and some sources that were mentioned throughout the episode, so you can find them there. 
You can also find us on iTunes and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. I'm Rachel Colleen and this was LawPod.